Welcome to our fourth episode of the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series, the NGO of the future. 2020 taught us many things, but one of the most important was that more than ever before, innovation in our sector is crucial. But innovation by itself is not enough. To make sustainable systemic change, NGOs need to achieve innovation at scale. In this episode, co-host Rachel Mason Nunn and I speak with Kevin Starr and Mark Reading on the innovation challenge facing NGOs and how the NGO of the future must become much better at taking successful innovations to scale. Kevin Starr is CEO of the Mulligo Foundation. The Mulligo Foundation finds and funds high-performance organisations that tackle the basic needs of the very poor. Kevin has taught hundreds of social entrepreneurs and others how to approach impact at scale, and there's nothing he likes better. Mark Reading is Head of Foundation at Atlassian, with over 36 years of business experience, including 21 years at PricewaterhouseCoopers. In his current role, Mark is the bridge between the Australian technology success story that is Atlassian and the charities that they choose to support through their Pledge 1% model. As always, we hope you really enjoy the episode. The world needs a vibrant civil society. International NGOs have been vocal advocates and trusted implementers for decades, but their very existence is under threat. In a rapidly changing world, how do we ensure their continuing impact and sustainability? My name is Rachel Mason Nunn, founder of Goodwill Hunters. This series is brought to you with support from Alinea Whitelam. As a certified B Corporation, Alinea Whitelam is at home in both the for-profit and the not-for-profit sectors, giving us a unique appreciation for the diversity of stakeholders that contribute to quality development. We're so glad you can join us for this important conversation on the future of the NGO this autumn. Kevin and Mark, welcome to the podcast. Kevin, can I start with you? In your Stanford Social Innovation Review article last year, you outlined the basic formula for successful innovation as simply innovate and prove scale. Now, it seems pretty simple, Why do you believe that most NGOs, and especially large NGOs, are failing so badly? Well, uh, probably because knowing what to innovate and what's a priority comes first. And then prove is a hard thing to do. And not that many people really prove rigorously things before growing them. And then scale isn't even well-defined. Um, and it's another really hard thing to do. And our, our ecosystem that we're all, if you can call it that, that we're all uh, swimming in, doesn't really function very well to take things to scale. So the ecosystem might be one barrier, but another is the lack of a scale mindset. In your article, Kevin, you talk about the project mindset that pervades the sector due to so much NGO funding coming from time-limited projects. And I see that project mindset really imbuing NGO culture all over the place. How do we shift away from that culture when it's so tightly tied to our funding model? Um, I think we get excited about the idea of scale. In other words, you've got an innovation. The exciting thing is to imagine what the potential of that innovation might be to create real impact in the lives of those we care about and how would it get there. That's a really interesting question. And if you don't ask that question, you're, you're just a project until, until proven otherwise, and you're missing out on most of the fun. 
It's actually, yeah, um, it's actually really interesting that even in your question, you asked, uh, how do you scale an innovation? And, and I think that subconsciously, um, historically, pretty much everybody in the sector has thought through a paradigm of how do we scale what works? And I've seen one or two instances, or in fact, actually only one instance recently, where probably the, you know, the, the most scalable project that I've seen in a long time began with a mindset of what works at scale. Um, and so it wasn't a question of proving something has impact at small scale and then gradually taking it bigger. It was actually from the very beginning, a mindset of how can we design and implement something that will be embraced at massive scale. And, I, and I'm talking specifically about an initiative in India called XSTEP, um, which was an education initiative. Um, and to cut a long story short, it's been embraced by pretty much every state. Um, 200 million students um, and their teachers are benefiting from it. And it's only been going a couple of years. And the people behind that, um, the founders of uh, Infosys, um, Nandan and Rohini Nilakani, and the, uh, the CEO of the initiative, Sankar, uh, Sankar Murawada, from the very beginning, were thinking about how can we take the existing resources in the system and make change that, that will be embraced by pretty much everybody in the system. And once we do that, how do we then grow the impact? So it's sort of turning the, the thought process on its head rather than how do we deliver impact and then how do we grow that? It's how do we, how do we get scale? And then how do, once we've achieved scale, how do we grow impact? It's a really interesting and, and novel um, and it appears successful approach to thinking about scale. It is interesting. And I've always felt that NGOs are the custodians of such an enormous amount of untapped intellectual property and that using that IP um, is probably something that not all NGOs have fully explored the potential of. But I think a big challenge is that numerous NGOs, thousands of NGOs are trying to solve the same challenges independently rather than looking at how best can we collaborate to solve these challenges, that maybe that collaboration across the sector isn't incentivized enough. What do you think are the main challenges to getting NGOs to collaborate more on innovation? I think it's partly because the people in the sector are incredibly passionate about their particular approach or idea and feel that if they surrender control of their particular initiative. It's not going to have the impact that they're hoping to have themselves. Um, so to a degree, I think it's it stems from the, the good intent, um, but the, you know, the adverse byproduct of that good intent is a desire to, to sort of retain custodianship or, or, or control, however you might think about it, over whatever approach, you know, the group of people are, are passionate about. That's that's certainly a factor. I would I would think a little bit differently than that is that we don't operate in a market for impact. And basically it's because funders aren't accountable, like me, aren't accountable for impact. So we don't actually create a market for it. So if you look in commercial markets, people collaborate or compete depending on what is the strategy that's going to make the most profit. And so if funders were funding for maximum impact, 
organizations would do whatever it took to get it, whether that's competing with each other or collaborating with each other. And those collaborations would emerge much more organically. And um, I, I take a very dim view of the role of IP in the social sector. I don't think it matters a bit. Execution is pretty much everything. And I don't think it would matter at all if everything we did was open source. I think the organizations that could execute would succeed and the ones that couldn't would fail. Clearly, the issue of funding is crucial, but few NGOs have sufficient reserves to be able to really invest in innovation and and certainly not to invest to the point where they can take innovation to scale. So, Kevin, where does the scale-up funding come from? Well, we think of it as in the R&D phase where you're coming up with an innovation. That's a good place for philanthropy. And then as you replicate that innovation to see if it actually is scalable, the early stages of that are really good for philanthropy, but eventually you've got to to transfer the burden to what we think of as the the payer at scale, which is either customers for a for-profit solution or government for a solution that's going to be carried out by government or big aid. And sometimes it's the big aid going through government. And so pretty much everybody needs to follow something that looks like that path. Typically, you start out with philanthropy, hopefully philanthropy like ours, which is long-term and unrestricted. But philanthropy can only take you so far. You need to understand that. And building, thinking you're going to scale with just philanthropy is usually um, a dead end. Going back to the earlier comment made by Kevin, you know, the capital markets force collaboration in the form of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, Not exactly always collaboration, but certainly the flow of capital to to those who the providers of capital believe will put it to its best and most efficient use. Um, There is no forcing mechanism um, in social impact. Um, I I have never been able to think of a way in which you could introduce a forcing mechanism. So I think we just have to accept that, but it is a reality. Um, Also, there are plenty of funders out there, uh, philanthropists, who, um, like us, are definitely focused on innovation. Um, Although I do think for many of us, and I probably include ourselves, um, there is, a, for some some reason, an innate desire to discover the next best thing rather than necessarily just join others in helping to grow something that somebody else has found. I mean, we because we're very conscious about that particular issue, try not to have it affect our decision-making. But unless you are thinking very consciously about that particular issue, I do think it actually pervades um, you know, some of the thinking and the decision-making made by philanthropists when they're, you know, when they're focused upon early-stage innovation. You know, there's something intuitively exciting and, 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 and appealing to human nature about being uh, the finders of the, you know, the great new discovery rather than the second supporter. What I hear you saying, Mark, is essentially that too many people in the sector are focused on social entrepreneurship and and not enough people are focused on actually scaling up the innovation. So we've touched on the importance of culture, we've touched on sources of funding, and we've touched on people's skills. But Kevin, I hear you also raise a really critical point around execution capability. None of these things matter if NGOs don't have a deep understanding of how they're going to make their strategic aspirations an operational reality. 
And I guess in my experience, that's one of the greatest skill gaps that's missing in the NGO world, what I might call business model thinking. Do you think that's right or do you disagree with that assessment? You know, when I first stumbled into this sector, I found that there were several big trends. One was that nothing seemed to be designed, just seemed to be collections of activities. Nothing seemed to be measured and nothing seemed to be run like a business. So I, I, I still, I think we're starting to measure, we're starting to design and we're starting to run things like business. So I think all three of those trends that I observed early on are, are certainly improving. And, um, you know, everybody's got two businesses they have to run. They have to run a business to deliver impact and they need to run a business to, to raise revenue. Uh, and so, um, I, you know, the, the social entrepreneur movement has sort of merged a lot of, of business practices and social sector practices. I think we're making real progress. I agree with what Kevin was saying there. Um, one thought that sprang to mind as he was talking is um, we're members of a, of a, a collaborative called Co-Impact um, and um, Bill Gates was one of the instigators for, for the Co-Impact movement. And I do recall a session in New York uh, in which he was being sort of um, interviewed as part of a small panel conversation. And one, one thing he said you know, really struck home with me, and that was that um, delivering commercial outcomes is so much easier than delivering so social outcomes. Um, when it comes to you know, running a business and focusing upon commercial outcomes and ultimately a return to your shareholders, it's relatively easy to, to work out you know, what the drivers are, uh, what metrics you need to track uh, in order to, to measure how you're going um, in relation to each of those drivers. Um, when it comes to social outcomes, um, the ecosystem is just so much more complex and it is that much more difficult to identify um, really what levers need to be pulled and, and what needs to be tracked and measured in order to deliver those outcomes. So, uh, yeah, I agree that, um, you know, there's a, a constant journey of improvement for the sector, but we shouldn't ever underestimate the complexity of the sector. And for me, that's a big reason why um, organisations that are really focused on and have built into the DNA and culture of, of their organization, um, a extreme focus on the ultimate beneficiary uh, and all of the community members and stakeholders that are part of the, the system at the coalface are those that tend to ultimately have more impact uh, than those that, that don't really you know, think through that lens and embrace that mindset. It's an interesting observation and it's interesting to hear broadly your reflections on how the private sector is um, comparable to NGOs. One observation that I've had that I'd like to get your thoughts on is I've spent most of my career in the private sector where merger and acquisition is typically a sign that a company has grown to the point where it can be acquired. It's a sign of success. Um, it's rarely a sign of that company underperforming. Um, and of course, mergers and acquisitions don't always work, but I don't think they're synonymous with bad things in the private sector. Whereas in the NGO sector, I know in Australia, at least, we have a really hard time talking about merger and acquisition. It's Sometimes it's seen as a kind of a failure. Um, people have a really visceral reaction to it when you ask them whether their organisation is open to being acquired. Um, why is that? 
What, why do you think we don't see M&A as a, a sign of success in the NGO sector? It's uh, mergers and acquisitions are mostly irrelevant to scaling the social sector because no innovation or idea or intervention scales through one organization alone. It's, it's by transferring the doer at scale. You know, if you have a new professionalized community health worker model, you scale by getting government to take it up and deliver it not by merging with another organization that does community health workers. So in the business world, what you're trying to do is get a business, capture as much of the market as possible and grow your business. It's a completely different notion of scale. You're simply trying to scale a business. We're trying to scale solutions. And that doesn't happen with just one organization. And so it's fine to us if a bunch of organizations are working on the same thing It's not going to accomplish that much if they merge. Kevin, can I just challenge you on that one? In your Stanford Social Innovation Review article, you essentially said successful but small innovations need to be taken on by big NGOs as one of the paths to scale. And certainly at Save the Children, mergers have been one of the ways we have sought to take successful innovation to scale. It was behind our merger with Library for All and and with Hands On Learning, for example. So are mergers with larger organisations not one of the ways to successfully take innovation to scale? No. My idea was that um, social entrepreneurs, for example, R&D something and prove that it has impact, show that it's scalable, and then the big NGOs replicate it at scale. You don't have that organisation merge with a bingo you actually have the bingo realize they've got something they can replicate to great effect. Mark, can I move on to the topic of technological innovation? Now, this is obviously an area where Atlassian has been incredibly successful, not just in Australia, but globally. What do you see as the secret to the success of a company like Atlassian to be able to take technological innovation to scale? And and what elements do you think NGOs should look to replicate? Yes, Atlassian has been very successful, Australia's most successful technology company. I think a big part of the success from a corporate perspective is the fact that from the very early days, the mindset was where we're approaching a global market. Uh, We're not thinking in a limited geographic way. We're not only trying to serve the Australian marketplace, Uh, we're trying to to create software um, that will be valuable to and um, be bought by people irrespective of where they are all over the world. Um, and so, you know, that mindset pervaded the design of the software from the very beginning and has you know, contributed to the success of the company. And pretty much any software company these days has to have that mindset if they're going to attract capital um, and ultimately be successful. Um, when I think about technology um, and social impact, um, I definitely believe that the technology is not the solution. Um, anybody who's thinking that technology will provide the solution, I think probably fails to understand the complexity of the situation uh, or has a healthy degree of uh, an unhealthy degree of hubris probably. Um, notwithstanding that though, you know, technology can be and often is an important component in an overall solution. Um, you know, one of the or a couple of benefits of, of technology are that um, it often has lower cost um, per unit, whatever you know, unit of measure you're adopting, um, than things that are done manually. 
Um, and secondly, you know, it can scale more quickly. Um, it is the sort of thing that can be you know, picked up and, and transferred very easily across geographic borders. Um, and thirdly, when it does scale, it, it does so without a, a linear increase in costs. You know, the, the marginal costs are, are pretty low. So I do think there's an important role for technology as a component um, that it facilitates and supports scaling um, of some solutions. Uh, but it's certainly not the solution in its own right. So if it's not the solution, uh, Kevin, to what extent are Milago investing in technology-based solutions? Um, we're inv- everybody's investing hugely in technology, sort of accelerated solutions these days ever, ever since they, they got low-cost mobile phones. Um, but we're looking at solutions, and usually a solution means you have a, a technology in some vehicle to deliver it. So, a, 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 you know, it depends on what, if you mean a technology as something that, as, as Mark said, uh, lowers transaction costs, that lowers transaction costs, makes things more efficient, extends reach as part of an overall intervention that already works, that's great. But if somebody comes to us with a, a, uh, a thing, and they say this piece of tech is going to save the world. We we have sort of four screening questions: is is that thing needed? Does it technically work? Will it get to those who need it most at big scale? And if they gets to them, will they use it well? And you can actually get a pretty quickly get a working sense of whether something has potential just by seeing how the 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 founder, leader, whoever you're talking to, uh, can answer those. Well, that certainly rings true for me, Kevin. I get quite a few approaches from people with some you know, really neat technological idea that they want to promote. And when I ask them what problem are they trying to solve with this technological solution, they sort of go quiet and, and really struggle to provide a response. So I think we do need to be careful about promoting technology for technology's sake. Now, Technology innovation has many benefits, and both of you have highlighted those, but innovation is much broader than just technological innovation. What are you seeing around non-technological innovation? What are the best examples of that? Um, I'll just tell you about, I mean, the thing I'm most excited about right now, and I I keep writing about it, uh, is the, what I see as a revolution in community health workers. So this sort of old model of the volunteer overstretched part-time community health worker that it never worked and it was just a it never fulfilled what seemed like real promise and so now there's a new model of professionalized community health workers who are paid well-trained certified supervised mentored in the field and well supplied and i think of that that you could call it a technology you could call it an innovation um it's extraordinary and it's really scalable because it answers our question to, you know, the impact has been shown and the uh, innovation has been well described and it's, it's enough in what we think of as three ways. It's big enough. In other words, there's enough places where it's needed and would work. It's simple enough that the doers at scale, the governments we hope to see do it, could do it. And it's cheap enough that the payers, the governments and the big aid that we want to pay for it, we think would pay for it. 
So we, we have a strategy to get to scale through governments, and we have a model that we think will can go to scale. And so it's kind of everything we're looking for. In order to pilot and, and test innovation, we need risk capital. And it's often argued that philanthropy should be the risk capital of the NGO sector. But realistically, is it? Are philanthropists willing to have um, risky new ideas tested with their money? I definitely think there are a group of philanthropists who are willing to do that. Um, but it's definitely not a, a universal case. There are, you know, there are plenty of organisations that, um, for for various cultural um, reasons or historical reasons, you know, are re- reluctant to do so. Um, so there is definitely a shortage of philanthropic funding for for new ideas. But that's not to say it's it's non-existent. Um, you know, I think that there is a, a lot of value in in innovation and sharing what doesn't work as much as what does work. Because, you know, to be honest, the vast majority of innovations uh, tend not to work. Um, doesn't matter whether they're in the, you know, the, the, the private sector um, and they're, you know, new businesses or whether they're in the social sector and, and they're, you know, social innovations. Um, it's the nature of innovation that, um, you know, you don't have a particularly high success rate. So you need to have a mindset as a philanthropic funder that, you know, failure is not to be avoided. Um, failure is an accepted part of choosing to focus on this space. Um, and there is benefit that comes from failures, provided there's a means of, of you know, capturing and sharing the learnings and insights. Now, that's not easy because for both funders, but perhaps more so for the NGOs themselves, um, sharing failure carries with it the risk of eroding your own brand and the trust and the confidence that, that others have in you. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's challenging, um, but it's nonetheless important. Kevin, you said earlier that funders are not accountable for maximum impact. So I got the sense from you that at least in some senses, you see philanthropy as part of the problem here, not part of the solution. Is that the case? Oh, I'd be a little stronger about it. I'd say philanthropy is at the root of the problem and then just being part of it. Because imagine if you had capital markets where investors didn't care about profit and what a mess industry would be. So really, I think most of the major problems of the social sector would be, would be solved if funders were in some way accountable for impact. And I agree with Mark, I can't think of, a, of an easy way to get there, but I think we can, the least we can do is create a culture of accountability for impact. And I start to get some critical mass around it because, you know, you, 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 you raise that question of risk and it just, it always, I have to laugh a little bit. Like there's no risk in philanthropy. Nobody ever gets fired for taking too many chances. Nobody gets fired for lack of impact. I don't even know what the skin of the game really is that would define risk. We have, we, we, we work, people like me work in a, and in terms of, of, impact and taking chances on good ideas, we work in almost a risk-free environment. And I liked what Mark said about the, you know, the brand. You do have your credibility as a brand, but even that wouldn't be, if you took it all smart risks, it wouldn't be um, diluted by some, some intelligent failures. I agree with some of your comments on philanthropy, but I'm not sure it's the whole problem. 
I do think NGOs themselves have got to take some of the responsibility here. And Mark, if I understand you correctly, you would agree. There's a general unwillingness in most NGOs to admit that something didn't work. I mean, we almost never hear of NGOs telling donors that something that they tried didn't work. There just isn't a culture that says, let's celebrate our failure as a learning and try something else. Mark, am I being too harsh? No, 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 I don't think it's too harsh. Um, I, uh, in the same way that, that funders and, and the public generally um, is concerned that, that NGOs operate too much in silos and, and don't, you know, uh, collaborate and, and combine and, and share IP and, and do everything in a, in a way that we you know, think just intuitively makes sense, I think the same criticism can be levelled at philanthropists. Um, you know, we, generally speaking, operate relatively independently. Uh, there aren't too many, you know, collaborative groups that exist. Um, you know, there is a lot of duplication of, of resources. Um, there is a lot of um, work being done by people who are not as deeply skilled and specialist in a particular focus area, as could be the case if, if we combine resources a little more. So, you know, I don't, I don't agree with, with Kevin that philanthropy is the problem. Um, I do agree with Kevin that, that philanthropy, just like NGOs and governments, frankly, are all part of the problem. If I can ask you both a follow-up question there. Um, the other group that we've not spoken about here is government. And we've had an interesting relationship in Australia with innovation and performance-based funding in, our, uh, in the funding of our international development program. But in general, I would say that impact doesn't necessarily correlate to funding, um, at least in the Australian context. How do we incentivize government to support innovation and deepening impacts more in the way that they fund? I have no idea. I, I mean, I, I, what I mean by that is it's up to the organizations that we fund to um, work towards successful scale-up through government. And I don't, I mean, it doesn't, it, it, it wouldn't even occur to me to try to solve that problem as someone who funds for scalable solutions and the organizations that can take them there. But I don't have any idea how to change how, how governments operate. I can't even change the way philanthropy operates. Kevin, as someone who's passionate about scaling up innovation, that must be a huge concern uh, and one that I'm confident is shared across the NGO sector. If I asked uh, my colleagues, other CEOs of NGOs, whether they thought that there was a correlation between increased government funding and evidence of impact, I think that they would admit that at best, at best, it was weak. And so uh, don't we have a major problem here if one of our key methods for scaling innovation, leveraging government funding, is really just such a, a weak mechanism? I just don't think there's much of a market for impact anywhere. Like I just read a, a study on philanthropists and it was only a minority who said they, they made decisions on the basis of impact. Governments often don't make uh, decisions on the basis of impact. I mean, one thing we notice again and again in India, for example, is 
government will want to scale something up long before it's proven because they want to be seen as delivering a service or an activity that uh, at some kind of scale that they can get credit for. So I, I think this problem of not funding first for impact above all is, is you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's just philanthropy. It's pervasive. Paul, um, sort of drawing on the comments you made a short while ago, you know, I do think historically, you know, government funding has been very much focused upon, you know, funding activity rather than uh, outcomes or, or impact. Um, you know, different governments to different degrees are, are trying to change that, but um, with relatively limited success based upon my you know, somewhat um, superficial knowledge of exactly what's happening in that space. Uh, I, I do think it's actually particularly difficult for governments to drive innovation. Um, I'm thinking specifically, for example, in the education sector where, where we focus, um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you know, there is a high political cost associated with using public money for what is seen quite openly to be failed initiatives, um, you know, and particularly in strong democracies where you've got oppositions that are looking to tear down um, government initiatives and, and government's political capital wherever, wherever they can. So there is a high political cost. Um, and secondly, you know, it's very difficult to, to pilot an innovation in part of an education system, for example. You know, governments are responsible for the, for the whole system. And, you know, how do you decide which part of the system uh, will participate in an innovation? Um, how do you think about the fact that if the innovation fails, then the, then the students who were part of that innovation, you know, have suffered relative to others? Um, there are some particular challenges. That's, that's why I think actually, you know, innovation is best led by you know, innovative NGOs and, and philanthropic funders of, of those NGOs. But government should nonetheless, and, and those NGOs in particular, should be looking to establish you know, really close relationships as early as possible in the life of, of some innovation so that um, it's not a case of build it and they will come because you know, I've seen many, many you know, innovative um, initiatives um, that have been commenced on the basis that, look, we'll prove it works, and then once we do, you know, government will get behind it. Um, and more often than not, that doesn't occur. Um, so having that, that close relationship, and it does require, you know, conscious effort on the part of both the NGO uh, and government to, to create that, that close relationship from, from an early stage is part of the solution. But um, I just generally think that, that you know, governments are, not well-placed to be the drivers of the innovation on the ground. They're well-placed to create the policy framework that potentially fosters and encourages innovation. And if they invest in the space and the relationships, you know, they're then better placed to identify the things that really do work and the things that can be scaled and to you know, start to get behind them earlier on. I think that's a really good insight, Mark. It's absolutely critical that NGOs invest more in bringing government along on the innovation journey. We're nearly out of time, so let me ask you both one last question. If we've got these challenges with philanthropy, if we've got these challenges with government funding, what about the potential of new mechanisms like outcome-based contracts or impact funds, these sort of innovative financial devices? Are they the way forward? 
We've had some limited exposure to sort of hybrid types of approaches. You know, we've we've been sort of catalytic funders of uh, the Education Outcomes Fund um, and the Education Commission's uh, International Finance Facility for Education. I can't say I'm close enough to the detail to say that they, uh, you know, definitely um, a, a positive um, major contribution to to outcomes in the space. For me, we need to be continuing to to challenge the status quo and to, to think about new and impactful ways of doing things, including, including hybrids. Um, I think they've got real potential, um, but you know, I can't really point to, to any hybrids um, at present that I could say have you know, really made a major difference in the space yet. Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by hybrids, but I do watch all these complicated funding mechanisms coming into being. I don't think, I, I don't see more of a niche role for any of them so far because they're just too complicated and they're hard to scale. Blended finance deals that are really complicated, development impact bonds, they're all super complicated and they're usually one-off projects and they don't, there's really nothing particularly scalable about them. In, in one organization I saw, they squeezed that organization to be more innovative. And then the organization subsequently took a lot of those learnings to scale. So it was super useful in that way. But they're not a, they're not a scaling mechanism in and of themselves. We've covered a lot of things that NGOs should be thinking about, but is there one thing that you would recommend NGOs go away and do after listening to this interview to help them prepare for the future? Again and again, what I talk to social entrepreneurs about who, who say they're serious about scale is what is your thinking about who the doer at scale is? Who's going to really replicate this when it's really you know, nearing its... its uh, addressing the notion of its full potential and who's paying for it at, at big scale. And if you don't know the answers to those, you haven't really thought thoroughly about scale yet. For me, the comment would be um, challenge the status quo. Don't continue doing things the way they've always been done. There's no one right alternative approach but consciously look to challenge why you do what you do and how you might think about things differently or do things differently. So whether it's thinking about you know, the mindset that the next step have of you know, what works at scale rather than scaling what works, or whether it's Kevin's suggestion that from the very beginning you're thinking about you know, the funding and the, and the overall ecosystem and solution, um, whatever it is, don't just default to the existing historical approach. Be willing to, to challenge the underlying assumptions as to what you're doing and why you're doing it. Some great advice from both of you. I don't think we've provided NGOs with neatly wrapped solutions to their innovation challenge on this podcast, but you've both given them some great ideas about where the solutions might exist. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Mark. Great to have had you both on the podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this fourth episode in the Goodwill Hunters Autumn Series on the NGO of the Future. 
Look out for our next episode in the series, discussing the digital revolution facing NGOs with Pia Corona and David Spriggs.